Hello, people. Welcome to Misfits. This is where I speak to the rebels, the outliers, and the unconventional. Try to see things how they see it, and to learn from them. Some of these people include Betty Lee. At the age of sixty, did her first solo travel around the world. Taking Soon, who is the architect behind People's Park Complex, the first multi-story residential shopping mall in Singapore. Derek Sivers, Seth Golden, and a whole lot more. This episode, we have Steve Schlafman, who is a work-life transition coach. But more than that, he's a dad and a fantastic human being. Uh, I got to meet him in New York and stay with him. Uh, and he is just uh, a friend now. So he's been satisfied with various coaching and therapeutic um, schools and programs, including, but not limited to, the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, Coaching for Transformation, Internal Family System, Nonviolent Communications, Men's Emotional Leadership, Enneagram, and more. And previously, Steve uh, is a partner at the multi-billion dollar venture capital firm, RRE, and he's been graduated from Northeastern University. And if that's not even enough, he has been sober for more than 10 years now. Um, so without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this soulful and meaningful episode to me and I hope to you as well. I love my mother dearly. She is the hardest worker I know. Um, just has a motor that goes forever. She... You know, she was dealt a pretty tough hand. My father didn't pay child support for many years, and so she effectively was forced to work pretty hard to support our family. And so there's a part of her that wasn't allowed to be around or couldn't be around because she was working most of the day, nights, weekends, to support the family. At the same time, a lot of love. Um, you know, to her credit, she would always make sure there was dinner on the table. Just like an unwavering supporter, like my twin and I were, uh, my, my twin brother Dave, who uh, alongside me, we were, we were um, what's the best way to say this? We were troublemakers, <laughs> notorious troublemakers, where we used to just get in so much trouble. What is one, like? Crazy example. Uh, I mean, there's there's endless. Um, but I'll, I'll get to that if you want. Yeah. Um, but my mom, despite how reambunctious we were, uh-huh. it was just like always like unconditional love. Oh, wow. So like, what would be like one instance you'd be like, oh no, I'm totally not getting away with this. And then like, Oh, well, there was never, I'm not getting away with this. It was always, I am getting away with it with my, with Dave and me. I mean, we were like, we were, we were like co-conspirators, sidekicks. And so like kind of did most things together. And so, I mean, there's so many of them. We used to live, um, in the back of us was a barber shop. Okay. This is New York. No, and uh, I, was, I was born and raised in Swampscott, Massachusetts, about 20 miles north of Boston. Okay. Right on the water, one of these like quintessential, gorgeous New England coastal towns. Like my town was settled, I want to say, in like 1629. 
like has this like just a beautiful place. Anyhow, behind our house, we didn't have a, a, a lot of land. There wasn't any property, no lawn. There was a barber shop and we used to go into the refrigerator and get like yogurt, eggs, and just rain food <laughs> down on the back of this barbershop. And that's like kind of, if I'm being completely honest, it's funny to even mention this because even saying it out loud makes me uncomfortable. But we used to get, you, do you remember Super Soakers? The water oh, I, guns? I have a Super Soaker story too, but you, you go first. We, we used to fill up our Super Soaker and just run down the street because we lived across from the beach. So there would always be pedestrians walking by our house, enjoying the ocean yeah. and the water. And we would just go and drench them. And did your mom ever find out about this? Or? Well, uh, she did only because what would, it, what would end up happening is we would, we would, this is ridiculous. I can't even believe we're going there, but let's go there. Um, we would, um, we would soak the person. And then usually what would happen is we're twins. So obviously we're very identifiable. And one time we did it and the woman said, what's your name? And I think it was me where I said, David Maltz, which actually is, a, is still a, a good friend of mine. And of course, back in the day, like pre-internet, this woman went and looked up the last name Maltz and called David Maltz's mother and said, you're two sons. And she said, what do you mean two sons? I only have one son, the twins. She's like, no, you got to call Ellen Schlafman. Those, it's not my kid. So it's like that kind of stuff. Oh my god! And then, yeah. and then what did your mom? How did your mom react? Uh, my mom had a really hard time disciplining us. We were we were unruly, and we didn't really. I mean, my older brother, to a certain extent, he's two years older, was a father figure in a lot of ways. Um, we just we we just got in trouble. And then there was a certain point in time, I think we got to be like 12 or 13, where it kind of died down because we were starting to mature. It's like we started to like kind of... That's the age when people like go crazy. Yeah, no, we actually went crazy much younger in life and then started to mature. Oh, funny. Later in life, yeah. Or, or I guess still earlier in life, but... Yeah. And, and you mentioned that when you're um, younger, you're diagnosed ADD. Was it both you and your twin brother? I don't recall Dave being diagnosed, but knowing him as well as I do, I would imagine he also, he has it. Yeah. And how did that sort of, well, how did that diagnosis came about? Like, what was the symptoms? Or I, I, I forget. I mean, my mother always used to say that I had the spulkies, okay. which is like a Yiddish word for not being able to sit still. And so as long as she could remember me, she said that I had the spulkies and I'd imagine the same goes for my twin because we're, we're wired very similarly and just always had a really hard time concentrating. And what's, what's fascinating is because I was both uh, unable to sit still and, um, and had behavioral issues, I just automatically got thrown into what 
in the United States is referred as like special education, special ed, because the teachers had a hard time keeping me under control. And so special education was based special supports for kids with learning disabilities and things like that. And what's interesting is my dad tells the story that when uh, he used to see a therapist, this guy, Evan, and he always uh, used to say, like, Evan thinks you're, you and your brothers are just br- or you and your brother are brilliant. And it's like only a matter of time till you get into the right environment. And then once we sort of got into high school, then we started to, like, find our groove. But it's, I still struggle with it that even, even today. Well, there's a few threats. I think for, for, for parents, right, who don't know about ADD or have mild ADD or ADHD, like, what, how do you split the difference and what are symptoms they, before studying, look at it? And then for people who are actually having that, because you say later down the road, it became a superpower. So maybe talk a little bit about the challenges and how those challenges in the right context could become superpower. Yeah, I think it, I only can speak for myself having not gone in like, you know, like I have certain clients that have been diagnosed with ADD or ADHD later in life and they go down a whole rabbit hole. I haven't done that. Um, the way it showed up for me earlier in life and still to a certain degree is not only just like a restlessness, like very hard time sitting still. I've gotten a lot better at it with age, um, with the meditation practice. The other is is getting frustrated very easily. And so um, that's something that's that's so like I if I am trying to learn something and I feel just a little bit of resistance, I tend to just want to pull away and I can't focus. You know, some people when they like hit their edge, they they lean in harder. Like I I tend to that's funny. my my attention tends to which means, yeah, I have to, I have to try extra hard if I'm not grasping something and kind of come back to it multiple times over. Mm-hmm. Another way that um, it has showed up for me is um, even like spatially, mm-hmm. like I try to I try to be two places at once. Wait, <laughs> what's that? Meaning, like, if I'm cooking in the kitchen. I might be turning around to do something when my hand is already one place and I don't understand kind of my body in space. And so I can very accident prone, mm. which um, according to my wife is, is a sign of ADD and sort of this inability to kind of just like focus, be fully present. And so it shows up in a bunch of different ways. I would say later in life, it shows up in um, starting and stopping a lot of things. Books. I can't tell you, like, I've read hundreds of books. I've probably, I don't know, like, I've probably read hundreds of books 60% of the way through. Do you wish you finish it? Like, the ones that you stop? I stopped caring about that. Okay. Then yeah. It's, then it's, but there are times where like I'll even be reading and then a page in, I'm like, I have no idea what I just read. <laughs> and I'll go back mm. and reread it and digest it and be with it. But that happens quite a bit. Mm. It's funny that you say that like 
you it's hard to when you hit like when you learn something and then when it's hard um you like you pull back right because when speaking to a couple of your friends they say learning is your superpower it is well so like wait how does two and two square up it it's um there's like a it's when i have a natural interest to learn something i will dive in and if i hit my edge even if it's uncomfortable even if i don't understand it there's almost like a patient that a patience that comes with my curiosity mm so it seems like basically if you are learning something they are not interested in which then there's no patience when you hit a wall you just drop it yeah i just drop it so like let me give you an example recent example that i ran into maybe nine months ago um i was going through aletheia there was a section on attachment theory which is obviously a very important theory for if i think if you're certainly if you're a psychologist i think i believe if you're a coach as well it's important that you understand this um you know, in the context of how people form relationships and so on and so forth. Um, what's interesting is I started reading the materials and like I couldn't grasp it. Mm. So I like rather than trying to force it, I'm like, okay, it's just not happening right now. There's a buffet of other content to learn through this program. And a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with another coach and I was like, you know what? I really want to dive into attachment theory and learn it. And so I, there's almost like a trusting that if it's something I'm genuinely interested and curious about, even if I feel that resistance at some point, I'll come back to it mm. and then I'll dive in. Okay. So, so it's like, in some ways it's like kind of feeling my way. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not like forcing my way to learn something. It's more, can I just follow my natural curiosity and energy? And if for whatever reason I'm being told to pull back, I don't put pressure on myself to go harder. Right. I, pu I pull back and I'm like, okay, now's not the time. Yeah, cause, but that seems like actually a superpower. Because, you know, when all these people are memorizing, rote memorizing all these theories, like because of your sensing and feeling into it, uh, you have a more embodied sense of learning, which is more understanding than memorization. Would yeah. you say so? Yeah. And I have a part of me that wants to tr memorize stuff. And at a certain point, I, you know, I'm almost 44. My mind is not very good at memorizing things. Mm. And so what I find is I like have to keep on coming back to things in different approaches to really understand and appreciate concepts. I just can't read a book and then regurgitate all the con like I, I my, my brain doesn't work that way. I don't remember everything, but if I were to, you know, watch a YouTube video and read a little bit and have a conversation, like it sort of reinforces itself. And then there's a way that I develop my own language for it, but my brain is not, really suited to memorize things yeah. like I forget very easily if you were to go back in time and little stiff with ADD right and you tell him hey this are actually your superpower in this context what would you tell the little Steve what would I tell so well I would just say to little Steve to be patient 
Because what I ultimately discovered about myself much later in life is that school to me, especially, I'd say, but really before college, especially before high school, is traditional education doesn't really work for me. Um, there needs to be sort of practical applications of the concepts for me to like understand it and grasp it. And so, for example, I did not do well in math growing up. And part of the reason is because it was never showed to me how to use mathematics and real world applications. Once I went into business school and I started learning about finance and accounting and could now be like, oh, okay, now this actually makes a whole lot of sense. Once I could apply it, it came very naturally to me. And so I think that's how a lot of learning is, you know, is using coaching as an example, because I find that I'm in almost like getting a, a new degree, uh, like in some ways, like a, a master's degree in coaching. And I find that I can read a book on coaching, but the book doesn't even do it just, it's, it's the practice, it's the repetition, it's the discussing, it's the working with clients to just like reinforce and reinforce and reinforce these, these concepts. Mm. Are there, um, or oh, this is a site. So what I would say yeah. to Steve is just be patient, yeah. right? Like do the best you can, like follow your natural curiosity and like, it's going to be like, you're going to be okay. I had very low self-esteem, especially around academics when I was younger because I was in special education. Mm -hmm. And then once I got to high school, what's interesting is my twin brother, Dave, he was uh, one of the top students in our class, all on his own accord, just his own natural drive to achieve and succeed. And that rubbed off on me a little bit, but it took me a number of years to almost like for it to really hit me. And then by the time I was ready to go to college and I was leaving behind sports, I'm like, okay, I'm going to pursue academics in college and really throw myself into it. And then that's when I started to get some confidence. But for me, it just school, school, like I was, I was an okay student, like, but for me, it just never, it never spoke to me. But what's amazing is Eliza will say, like, you're constantly learning. Like, as an adult, it's like, it's what I love to do the most. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to be said. I don't know if you uh, will agree to me on this, that in some sense, school is broken, right? School is made for the industrial age where we need to send a lot of people to learn a certain thing so that they can work in factories all at once. And for people like you who don't fit the mold of, you know, standardized learning, then, you know, you get kicked out to the side and make you f feel like, you know, you're bad at Yeah. Yeah. And, and listen, like, there's a reason why I chose to go to Northeastern University in Boston because they have a co-op program. Mm. So the whole program is designed, it's undergrad, graduate, but the whole program is designed around going to school for half the year, studying, and then going to work for the second half in your field of study. So when I graduated, I had a year and a half of work experience and I was directly applying what I was learning and it, it just worked out great. Mm. Yeah. I mean, when, 
I want to sort of segue into like substances. And I was thinking, like, maybe what would you say is sort of your introduction and your ramp up into use of alcohol and marijuana in specific? Yeah. Uh, I knew from a young age that, uh, well, specifically that my father had addiction issues. So I remember at a like, very young age visiting him in rehab, probably age like six. Wow. Um, Lennox Hill in Lynn, Massachusetts. Never forget it. We brought him pizza. Um, it's kind of like, but wasn't hidden from us. What which, was your experience going there? Like how? I don't really recall, other than Dad's in the hospital and we're gonna go visit him. Okay. Um, we're gonna bring him pizza, but eventually it came to light is because of his addiction. Uh, What's interesting is because of that, when I got of the age where people were starting to talk about drinking drugs, middle school, I was like, I'm never going to touch anything. That's not me. Right? Um, my dad, you know, he had his issues. Um, my mother also is an alco recovering alcoholic. She's been sober now definitely over 20 years. And so grew up, I mean, it was may mostly out of sight for us and she wasn't she wasn't like aggressive or anything but like it was we knew what was going on like we were smart enough to know so we grew up and were raised by parents that struggled with addiction so i think it's important to note that but i kept on telling myself I'm not gonna do anything no freshman year in high school you know like most high school kids start to experiment. So I think I had a few beers, but I didn't really like get trashed for, for a while, but it was, the, 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 I'll never forget it. It was like April 5th of 1995. I'm really dating myself. Um, I, was a, I was a sophomore in high school and um, my buddy Zach and I, one of my closest friends, still, still is in my life, went to the golf course and we, started smoking weed and we got stoned and I, I'll never forget. I just was numb. I was completely numb. And there was something about that experience of just being completely numb. That was like, Whoa, this is, I didn't even know what to, to, but I just remember that night I was complete. I barely remembered anything, but there's just like numb. And so what I said was, okay, well, you know, I can drink and I can smoke weed, but I'm not going to do any other drugs. So that was a, that was a story I told myself for many, many, many years. It was like, I'm not going to touch any hard drugs. I can drink alcohol. And then the summer before I went to college, you know, throughout high school, I like dabbled smoking weed, but nothing, nothing crazy. What would you say is like one stick or whatever? I, yeah, every maybe once a month or so, football season ends. I obviously wasn't drinking and drugging during football season, and it was like that the back half of my senior year in high school, and I started smoking weed quite regularly. Mm. Not every day, but like a handful of times a week, and then the summer going into college, um smoked every single day. And then that's, that's kind of where it picked up. And then, 
you know, certainly throughout college was smoking every day, you know, drinking a lot. And then that just steamrolled into my profession, like into becoming an adult. When you, when you were going through that period, like there wasn't any sense that you feel that you're addicted at all, right? There's no story about that. Oh, when was the first? It was a, I mean, there was a part of me in college that was like a little, like there was a part of me, a small part of me, but it's like a little concerned that there was an issue. Okay. But there was um, like not that. But it wasn't really there. The first time it came front and center is I was seeing a therapist in Seattle. So I graduated from college, moved out to Seattle to work for Microsoft. They have a great benefits program. And I was like, you know what? I should probably see a therapist. Um, I think it was I move. I was moving away from home. I, I, I totally forget. But it was just like, I should see a therapist. There's no anxiety, at least that I was consciously aware of, right? <laughs> um, and I remember, I forget the woman's name. Uh, she was young, my therapist. And I remember telling her, yeah, like at the end of the day, I come home and smoke weed and I usually have a few beers and she's like well how I basically was like yeah I do this pretty much every day and then I would binge on the weekends like going out Thursday through Sunday a lot of drinking a lot of eating a lot of she's like I think you have a substance use disorder did you just say it like point blank I yeah yeah and she recommended that I try a 30 day or 28 day uh, what's known as intensive outpatient program. Um, so that would mean I could go to work. Oh. And then at night, I would like at six o'clock, usually I think it was like six to or 6.30 to like 8.30, nine o'clock, I would go to effectively like group therapy around substance abuse. Huh. How do you and feel when she told you that? I kind of knew it. Oh. Yeah, like instead, it wasn't like, what are you talking about? It was like, yeah, I'm getting smoking weed every night. I'm like drinking four days a week. Like, yeah, there's like clearly something going on. And so there was not resist. I was even open to it because I had seen what my dad had gone through. But there was a part of me that's like, yeah, it's just weed and alcohol. It's like not even that big. Like... It's, you're not doing any of the hard drugs. And some of the people in my program, they they had some incredible stories. I st- still remember a, a number of them. And I went, I ended up going sober six months. Wait, wait. So you did, went to that program? I did the program and then started going to AA meetings in uh-huh. Seattle. So um, after six months with, the program is 28 days. Yeah. And then you're good. And then you, after you graduated and moved to AA. That's basically how most of these programs are structured. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I started going to AA meetings. And at the time I was young, I was probably 25, 26. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't ready to receive the message. Yeah. How do you, yeah, one, going through the, the 28 days, right? Um, were you public about it? Was, was it like a hush-hush oh, affair? Oh, no. I was very quiet about it. Okay. And then while you're at the program, um, how, what was the sense that, were you like, okay, I need help, and so I'm going to help myself? Was it like, a, oh, myself, or is it like an achievement thing? I need to 
powered through 28 days? No, it was, I, I think the way I showed up to the program was a very open mind. Okay. Like I'm here to learn. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what, so you're saying after the thing then AA, like why did you say that um, you feel that you're not ready to receive the message? Well, I, I'm specifically referring to the message of AA. And there was one I never truly identified with an alcoholic uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, I definitely drank more than the average person, but I also wasn't passing out left and right. I like I could, yeah. I want like like it wasn't an out of a control problem. Um, but I definitely used a lot of it, especially on the weekends. Um, with marijuana, absolutely. Like I'm the first to admit, like there was an issue. I was doing it every day, sometimes before work, uh, which is a theme that continued, um, until I got sober. But I guess what, what I'm trying to say is that this program was just kind of like a taste. And then I go to the AA meetings and they start talking about like, a higher power. And actually AA uses the word God quite a bit. And it just didn't, it just turned me off. Mm. I just was not interested in higher power and God at that point in my life. Right. And um, I also didn't really work the steps. I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't do like all the things I did the second time around. And so I just didn't throw myself into it. I was kind of going through the motions and like looking back, I didn't really want to get sober then. Mm. Despite, by the way, six months feeling great. um, In some ways, I'm glad that that didn't happen because, you know, I think my life unfolded the way that it has. And I think while I'm not saying like substances like led me down this path, but like there's a bunch that happened that I think would have not had it been for substances and going out and having fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess you, 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 you um, there's no way to paint another possible, um, you know, or have the experiment. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and now I think let's roll forward to the second time that your second attempt of getting sober. And I'm not sure this is the one, where um, the, the time till now is, or is there somewhere in between? No, there was no, there was nothing in between. It was almost 10 years exactly between, is that true? Yeah, I guess almost 10 years. Okay, so. So basically like 25 to 35, ages 25 to 35 from just doing whatever I wanted to do. Yeah, and were there any point? Okay, well, I guess that there was. If not, you would have not, you know, done the um, commitment, have made the commitment to be sober. Um, maybe I'll paint the picture a little bit of context from the outside point of view, and then you can feel, feel me in from the internal point of view. I was speaking with your wife, and she was saying that, like, one day Steve came home, and he's like, I just want to get sober. And then I was just like, was there, was, was that even a problem, like, at all in the relationship? It's like, nope. Like, I don't know why he even want to do that. 
And so like that is from like your other half, right? But yeah. maybe fill in the other side of the story. Yeah. So I was, and I've written about this. I was very skilled at keeping it a secret. Okay. Um, so how, I mean, how, how did I keep it a secret? Um, well, for starters, if I was going to get stoned in the morning before on my way to work, which was something I did all the time, um, I would have cologne on me. I would have Visine. I would have gum or breath mints. So, um, I would be able to cover it up and mask it, um, quite a bit. Um, I got a prescription to Adderall, so I could take Adderall pretty much whenever I wanted, wherever I wanted. Sometimes I would crush it up, right, and blow it on my nose. And so um, point is, is that Eliza knew I liked to smoke weed and drink. She didn't know the extent that I was smoking weed. And I think what uh, what ended up happening was like I had to come clean there and say like yeah like I've been using a lot behind your back. Yeah, but I guess like even if you do right, um, it didn't affect or she didn't feel that it affect. No, because your performance in work. No, as a I father. mean in some ways I I know this is going to sound crazy. I think that some of my most productive years. As a professional, it's, I know it sounds crazy, was when I was using. And I think a lot of the reason behind that was I was using it as a, as a way to numb myself. Right? Like, here's the way that I, I wouldn't use to compulsion. Or I compulsively used, for sure. But I didn't use so much that I couldn't function. So it would just be like, if I had a hit and like a beer, perfect. So there was never like a moment where it was interfering with my career or my relationship. Like it was, it was like, I would, I would always have just enough to like sort of turn down the volume, numb me enough where I'm like, I don't have to fully feel in it, like experience everything. I just can just like focus blinders on and just do what's in front of me and at the end of the day completely detach and disassociate and yeah and, and that sounds so like that so that so it was like in some ways like i remember i had this uh this closet uh -huh. we lived in fort green i had this closet and i used to get weed and i had like a weed station where i would have like multiple one hitters and a lighter and i would just go in there and i'd pack it up sunday morning hey lies i'm going out to grab a coffee she'd be like okay i'll see you and i would just go out and get stoned and come back and just like everything was totally cool i wouldn't even be like yeah i just got stoned i would just keep it in myself a lot of it was suffering alone and in by myself yeah i mean look if i am a executive right um or as an executive and having weed makes me more productive in some ways and i can focus better are you saying that based on your own experience no, 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 no. That, oh. i mean like if if i am right um a hypothetical that and i like and there's a lot of upside so this is all the upside what are the downsides because I can turn off the suffering. It's good. I, can, I feel less pain. Yeah, well, I think it's you don't be, you, you're disembodied. Mm. 
you're, well, at least what I was doing, and I can only speak from my own experience, is that I was like numbing myself. I was like sleepwalking through life. And by turning down that volume, I was missing out on so much, including a relationship with This was like went on for 15 years. So like there was like a lot of emotional um, mat maturation that had to take place once I got sober. It's like in some ways I had like stunted my emotional growth for all those years. And so like I was disembodied. I was sleepwalking. I was numb constantly. I was always in like this kind of just this haze. Mm -hmm. It's like my only objective was to like achieve at work and succeed and be successful and be a partner to Eliza, but not even a fully present partner. Mm. Like I remember we used to live in Boston. There's so many of these stories to live in a apartment in Boston in the South end when, um, when I, when we lived there and behind our apartment was like a, like a, like a fire escape. Okay. And I used to be like, I'm taking a shower to Eliza and I used to go in, pack up like my one hitter. And I used to literally open up the window, step out onto the apart on the fire escape, get stoned, put everything away, shower, come out and, oh, let's go. So there's like, there's yeah. a lot of that. So yeah. that's what so why there's, I guess it's like, um, um, Conce concealing, conceal, right? Right. With hell, right? Withhold. Withholding, concealing. Right. And lying, lying for sure at that time in my oh. life. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of, um, in some sense, energy that's leaking. It, it was nothing but energy leaking. Right. Um, but then at the same time, on the other hand, you were killing it at your work. Yeah. <laughs> killing it. Yeah. And so I'm just in my head thinking, like, for, you know, um, a, a, a person who is in this role, killing it at work and, you know, having a great wife, a great on the outside, right? Like, how do I tell this person, oh, I mean, like, this person, this old person that, like, hey, maybe you should like think a little bit different. Because at least for my, and I, maybe I can say the same for you, it, the story is I was successful. I had all the things I want, but I wasn't happy. Yeah, I wasn't happy. And I was also like having anxiety, chest pain, was sinus infections, constantly sick, sick all the time, like compromised immune, like health like my body even though i was like still going to the gym five days a week my body just wasn't keeping up i remember there'd be nights where i'd lay in bed with like anxiety can you like, describe how that like how that feels well i would literally i was laying in bed with anxiety and shame being like couldn't sleep it was like 2 a.m eliza would be sleeping next to me and i'm like I'm living two lives. Like I'm suffering here right now. And I can't even, t I, I thought that I couldn't even tell her what I was going through because I was afraid that she was going to leave me. Wow. Yeah. 
And actually, she knew. She knew. She no. She did not know because I hit a lot from her at the time. But she had known earlier when we were dating. I had told her I went to that program in Seattle. So it's not like she knew like that this was completely out of left field. I think she just kind of thought that it was something that I had under control. Mm. Now, if we fast forward a little bit to your first meditation retreat, and I don't know if that is before or after the power of now. Um, it, was, it was after the power of now. So yeah, so basically I read the power of now uh, almost 10 years ago. Started meditating as soon as I finished reading it. I learned transcendental meditation. Got sober nine months later. And then shortly after, started going on different retreats. What was, is that, was that inflection point that made you sort of decide on a, a meditation practice and or, uh, you know, sobriety commitment? Yeah, well, I think when I read The Power of Now, there was something, I forget exactly the passage, but just this idea of constantly living in the future and like grasping for things. That was the essence of the message I received. And that really hit me because I'm like, oh yeah, I just constantly living in the future, like wanting to, you know, score and, you know, and, and I want to like I want to I want to like experience what Mr. Tolle is talking about and living in the now in the present. And so I'm like, you know what? And he talks in the book about addiction, all different kinds of addiction. There are certain points where he talks like you know, sort of this idea of like the hungry ghost, where it's like this insatiable appetite that you eat and eat and eat and eat and eat, never get full. Like I. I experienced that. And so I was like, oh, maybe meditation will be the thing that grounds me enough where I can eventually get sober. I swear. Took me almost nine months from that point of learning meditation and getting sober. But what's amazing is, is that intention was, yeah, maybe this is going to be the thing that helps me get oh, there. What is the link? Well, the link is... Meditation forces you to sit with yourself. And transcendental meditation is one of those things where it's twice a day, or sorry, yes, twice a day for 20 minutes. So I was sitting 40 plus minutes a day right out of the gate and very consistent. So after a while, you spend enough time with your thoughts and you start to see patterns. And I'm just like, okay, there's a pattern that like, I'm clearly continuing to use pattern and there's increasing evidence that I have anxiety and shame and all these emotions. Mm -hmm. um, and there's evidence that it's progressing and getting worse. And there's evidence that I don't want to do it anymore. Like I'm just like not happy. And at a certain point in time, there was enough dissatisfaction to kind of push me over the edge. You know, it's like, you know, what Jim, Jim and Diana, I mean, this isn't exactly what Jim and Diana would say, but like the change equation, which they wrote about in the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, 
it's um you know what is it it's um vi vision vision plus um dissatisfaction plus first steps need to be greater than resistance to generate change and in my experience you neither have to have an amazing vision for the future to drive change or you have to just be so dissatisfied with the current state and for me i did not have a vision for what life could be sober so far outside the realm of possibility for me so the thing that really tipped that equation for me was i was just very dissatisfied and meditation was the thing that helped me see that over and over and over again mm. yeah because if you have not had the meditation it would have just been the dissatisfaction moment would have been numb out by you know the substances yeah right perhaps i mean maybe at a certain point you know, something would have happened and there would have been a different catalyst, but it, it was the right one at the right time. Yeah. And how do you square up, you know, do you went back to AA or is this a different version of AA with less God in it? So, so there was, there was AA. Um, so the quick, the quick story of how I got sober was I had even though I was suffering, I was developing an investment thesis that addiction recovery was broken. Yeah, I saw that deck <laughs> that you made. Yeah, and so I started building a business case for our investment fund to go invest in addiction recovery companies. So I went out and I hired Harvard MBA for summer intern to help me map out the space. The first day that she started, my partner came to me and said, hey, there's a gentleman who I'm family friends with that just finished, um, just got sober from opiate addiction. Oh. And he's going to be a summer intern. And he's exceptionally bright, 4-0 student in college. Um, I want him to help you on this project. And so for the first week of this project, Annie, this individual, I'll, I'll keep him confident, anonymous, and I, the three of us, got into a conference room and started doing a big deep dive on how addiction recovery works, the structure of the market, different models, philosophies. And by Thursday, I pulled him aside and I said, hey, I... I I, I need to tell someone this. I have a problem. Oh. And he's like, that's okay. I got you. And he said, come to an AA meeting with me tomorrow morning. I met him at 7 a.m. Oh. I think 7. It was 7.30 meeting. Probably met him at 7 a.m. at a coffee shop. And um, that was my first my first meeting back in 10 years. And I've been sober ever since. And um, just like the way that it aligned this intern coming in, having his own experience, him having a really strong AA community in New York City, that had that there. brought in an accountability and we ended up being colleagues together. And, and so I, I share this because it wasn't, it was just like a confluence of factors that came together for me to get sober. 
The other thing I, I, to answer your question about the God higher power, because I had been meditating mm. and the specific type of meditation, transcendental meditation, when you transcend that experience, you know, people have written about it, but it's sort of this like big expand, like it can be feel very expansive. You can feel connected to something. And so I also had a, a sponsor who also had issues with the higher power earlier in life okay. and was like, or God. And he's like, you don't have to think about it as God, like higher power can mean all these different things to you. And like, do you believe in something bigger than yourself? Do you? And I was like, yeah, I can, like I felt it. And yeah, I, I can do that. And that was enough to get me over the hump. And then I just embraced it because as I was doing more meditation and I was uh, cultivating more presence and awareness, you start to see all these different connections and synchronicity, if you want to call it. So it became very easy to believe in a higher power. And a side uh, question about AA um, as an organization, like why do you think AA became AA internationally, and it, yeah, it, it sort of became its own thing. Yeah. Well, I think, listen, AA isn't for everybody. You know, there's many ways to get, to get sober, and I would say I view my path to recovery as hacking a bunch of different modalities. You know, yes, there was AA, but there was healthy eating, exercise, sleep, meditation. I saw a therapist that specialized in AA. So for those watching and listening, I just want to be clear, like AA isn't the only game in town. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of people, specifically women and minorities, that can feel like it is... Um, it is not for them, for whatever reason. Not my experience being in meetings in New York City, but I've talked to women, some women and minorities that feel that way. So with that disclaimer out of the way, I think AA is really powerful because for a bunch of reasons, one of which it's global. You can be in LA, Singapore, New York, Fargo, North Dakota, Lake Platte. Like I've attended meetings all over the place. There's always a meeting. You can always find a meeting. It's free, right? Um, it's why it's really powerful, right? It was a place where people could go to, to heal and get help and build community when, um, and it, addiction is still stigmatized. I think it's becoming less so um, given the rise in opiates and all the, you know, all the awareness that's, that's being driven, but there's still stigma around it. And there, it was like gave addicts and alcoholics a place to go and to be able to like express themselves and share their experiences um, with others and be of service to other human beings. And so there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's a really powerful model. The steps are also brilliant. They're brilliant in a lot of different ways, right? 
starting from the first one where it's like, you know, I admitted that I was powerless, right? Which is the paradox of change, right? Where it's like, we can't change something until we fully accept what it, it what and who it is that we are, right? So, I mean, everything from doing an inventory of your life and communicating all the wrongs that you've done to other people to another human being in terms of like, you know, um, you know, helping process shame and guilt to doing a daily inventory. It's it, it, and then eventually, you know, being of service, like you know, spreading, giving it, you know, spreading the word to another addict or alcoholic. And so, the the, the steps are brilliant. And it's just, it's a, it's a great organization. And what I found, especially in a city like New York, the meeting, the meetings are amazing. Like there was a meeting that I used to go to. It was my home group on 11th street and fifth Avenue. And it was magical. It was a 7 a.m. 7.30 a.m. meeting. And it was just like the people that the stories you would get in there and all different walks of life celebrities, people that just were, you know, just living on the street, like in everything in between black, Asian, white, like, I mean, it was, and people coming in from out of town and crashing the meeting. So when you find a meeting that you just feels like home, it's, it's wonderful. And when you were doing the deck, right, how would you say is you want to contribute? Like what, I mean, your deck thesis, like, how is it an adoption that yeah so the thesis that we developed over that summer from an investment perspective was that alcohol was um sorry addiction recovery was broken and i thought back to my experience when i went to that intensive outpatient where um let me think about it 28 day program 30 day program and then you're done with it, and then you go to uh, AA meetings. Right. That was that's the model. Or you go to an inpatient program, 30, 60, 90 days, however long you have to be there. And then you either go to a halfway house, you go home, and then you start attending AA meetings. That's basically been the gist. High upfront costs, you know, for intensive outpatient at the time. This was over 20 years ago. 25 hundred to five thousand dollars and then you look at addiction recovery programs which can be up to a thousand dollars a day so really high upfront costs and then when you're done there's no like aftercare program they kind of like kick you out into aa and then they're like you're on your own and what we there were sort of two big themes that we sort of zeroed in on one was what would it look like if addiction recovery was more of like a subscription, more like a gym? Mm. And that it's more of a holistic program. So that's kind of where our thesis began was like, what is if it's more continuous, it's more holistic? Then there was another trend, which was the opiate epidemic. And so there was almost like business model innovation that we were sensing. And then there was also sort of a big macro tidal wave. And what we ended up doing is we invested in a company called Groups, 
Um, at the time, it was called Recover Together, and they are one of the largest uh, clinic, opiate addiction clinics now in the country where they literally brought the subscription model to really hard-hit communities. So what, what this company figured out was that, um, you know, in middle of New England, in these, like, predominantly white, um, rural, poor, lower-income towns, is that there was no addiction recovery support in them. So what they would do is they would stand up a clinic, they would provide, like, a monthly service where these people would come in for group, see a doctor, get Suboxone, which is helpful. It's a, it's a prescription medication that helps suppress the cravings and the withdrawals and basically help them, you know, get back on their feet. Mm. And so anyhow, that's, that was, that's basically what became the thesis and what we ultimately invested in. Got it. Seems like another life <laughs> telling these stories again, because it, yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about VC, you know, um, maybe a little segue and a little uh, uh, into this VC life at the peak of your career, right, as a VC, like what are the few companies that um, you handpicked and invested in or your firm? Yeah, so, well, there's a lot and I always think of this as like a team sport, Um so, I mean, there was a bunch of them. Um, so when I was at Lair, I backed a company called Zipline. What's interesting at the time was called Remotive. Oh. And the founder, Keller Renato, who's just, he's dynamite, love the guy, just like an incredible visionary leader, met him um, and just fell in love with him. And at the time they were building these toy robots. But like just the way he talked and his energy and passion, we were like, we got to back this guy. Like he is, this guy's awesome. So we ended up investing in the company. And then, you know, several years, they ended up raising money from Sequoia Capital and then ended up, um, got a call from him. This was when I was at RRE. So we were friends and he's like, hey, I'm going to be in New York. We should catch up. I want to tell you about what we have going on. And he's like, yeah, we built this thing called Zipline. And I then went out to, I think what they called the farm. It's in Half Moon Bay. Oh. And um, invited me out to see their, basically what Zipline does for those listening, it's drone delivery, um, starting with medical supplies in um, developing nations, third world countries. Um, to get medical supplies and medicine to people um, faster where there's no infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So uh, I went out to Half Moon Bay to visit Keller, and I was just like, can I invest in this? And so I ended up making a personal investment in it just because I really believed in him and what the company is doing. So that was one that I think I'm, I'm really proud of, not just because you know, they've gone on to impact a lot of lives and because it's had some success, but just because I think it's really good for the world. Um, and another one I'm, I'm always really proud of is a company called Brightwheel, mm -hmm. which powers the majority of daycare centers. So it's ver a vertical SaaS product. And the thing that's amazing about Brightwheel is that when he was raising his seed round, he came to me, I was like, I'd love this guy. 
And I said, like, I want to invest, but since at the time I was at RRE Ventures, we were, were, were much bigger funds. So we typically don't, we at the time we didn't lead seed rounds. So I said, put us down when you get a lead, just come back and count us in. I think I said like 250K or something like that. And he went out and couldn't raise the round. Mm. He couldn't find a lead. All the investors in San Francisco passed. And, um, but I'm like, this guy is like awesome. And he has this vision to build this platform in early education. It feels broken. All the providers in the space were doing like, like still selling their software on CD-ROM. And I said, you know what? He, he still reminds me of this. I, I called him up. He was literally going to a wedding that weekend. And I said, you know what? We'll, we'll lead the round. And I ended up increasing our check size. My partners were on board. And the round came together like that. And then Chris Saka and Mark Cuban, he was on Shark Tank. Oh. Um, they came in, he launched. And this was, I, I don't, I, I haven't seen this many times when a company launches and has product market fit, where they just, the market pulls it. And that, that was Brightwheel. And so I'm also really proud of that invest. But there's, you know, those are just two that come yeah. to mind from different firms that I was yeah, at. To say, I mean, so many other, go down the list, ARC, um, recent investment, you mentioned a little bit. And the point is, you're good at what you do. Yeah, and, and in hindsight, like, I think I was, I was a decent investor, not a great one. Oh. And I think that's one of the things that towards the end of my investing career, instinctively, I believed I could have been great at it, but I didn't have the passion for it. Mm. I, I, had, I had seen what it requires to be great in others. And it just, I think with enough sobriety under my belt and enough like introspection, I just didn't give a fuck. Right. I, I just didn't, I just didn't like it, it, it was, it, it just did not excite me in the way that it, it did when I first started. And I think it's one of those things that once I stopped numbing myself and actually had to, it's like, I just, I, I didn't love it as much as I used to. And I was changing as a, as a person. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting um um to be safe because you mentioned like at the start there was this energy and excitement and at the tail end there wasn't so it wasn't that you have never had excitement. no i remember i i think back to moments when i was at lair and rre where i'm like i am i'm on cloud nine i'm super happy i love what i'm doing i'm making a dent in the world like I'm someone who matters. I'm, you know, doing well financially, like all the things. But then once I, once I left RRE and I started my transition, I got lost. I was lost and disoriented for almost six months where I wasn't attached to any firm. I thought I was going to start my own firm. And that whole period of disorientation kind of like dislodged me in a way that made it hard for me to go back. I, in that time, I also started my coaching training. Yes. And also, by the way, you also raised money successfully. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it, but there was this moment, this like six month period where I kind of got dislodged out of the momentum, out of the momentum. And eventually I went back, I went to primary ventures as a partner where I was there for 18 months. And I just like, couldn't like, I, I had one foot in coaching. I had one foot in investing and I never felt like I could fully get settled back in the investing game. And with a, enough time, I was feeling more and more pulled to do the coaching. And so what ended up happening is, is I wasn't performing as an investor at, and a partner at primary because my heart wasn't in it. Yeah. I wasn't. And so like towards the end, it, I think it became clear, but it took me a while to get there. Yeah, I think that, I think first of all, I think it's important to highlight that you didn't quit like right off the bat, right? No, you already have something going, right? And something's pulling you. And then, well, let's put the change formula into this context, right? There's a little vision and there's some suffering because it's not getting the groove, right? And you previously experienced Cloud9 as an investor before. So you feel the differential. Right, and so there was less of a risk because this thing at the track is picking up as you're getting good at what you do coaching now. Yeah, yeah, and for me, I just the differential was real, and my hope and my vision going back to was somehow integrating the two, and. I believe that integrating the two still remains possible. But as I tried to solve that puzzle of integrating investing and coaching, I realized that there were a lot of parts of the investing job that I just didn't like. What are those? Well, I, I didn't like the flood of email, which we were talking about a little bit last night. I didn't like people fighting for my time in my calendar. Um, I didn't like trying to like sell myself and win competitive deals. Um, what else didn't I like? I, I hated passing. Oh. On, on investments, um, hated it, hated it. Um, really struggled with that. I didn't like taking lots of pitches. Oh. Like there would be times because in, in some ways there's like, you gotta take a lot of meetings. Like that's sure. part of the game. Like you get a lot of decks, have to review decks, you bring them into the-, the Wait, what is the, with the picture? What? The pic oh pitches oh, pitches. oh I thought you say photo no like oh. pitches oh, okay. like ahead. investment pitches where they would come to our office and I would have thirty minutes sixty minutes to meet with a team to get to know them. Um, my days pre this was really pre primary but at Lair and R eight like back to back to back to all, all day long. I mean I've probably sat in thousands of pitches in my life. And just towards the end, you would, you know, there would be moments where you would, you would meet someone 
in the hallway, shake their hand, walk back to the hall. Like, and just through the interaction, you're like, yeah, this doesn't, it's not, um, it's not resonate. Like there's some, and then you would sit and you would spend 30, 60 minutes learning about their business and being like, yeah, I'm not like, I'm not feeling this. But you'd have to take, because you just don't know. You you got to meet the people. You got to hear the story. You got to hear how they think about the market. So part of that was like, towards the end, I was like, you know, I have a lot of creative energy. And I feel like if I take eight pitches in a day and every single one of those is a dud, like, what am I using my time for? Like, it just didn't feel like a good use of my time. Like, it's not how I want, better way to say it. It's not that it's a bad or a good, it's not how I wanted to spend my days anymore. Can I ask, when you were feeling that at the VC firm, were you, when you were doing coaching or learning about it, was there a sense of uplifting, there's more energy, there's more excitement around there? Yes and no. I would say yes, like, as an Enneagram 7, loves learning new things. I was interested in it. Um, looking back, I had no clue what I was doing. I, so there was like something new and interesting about it and coupled with this vision of maybe building like a leadership academy and in integrating invest. So there was like a part of me that was like, I'm interested because of the, the, the future. Um, the other side of the coin was very much felt like an imposter, very, a lot of new vocabulary to me in terms of like, you know, the traditional like ICF type of uh, pedagogy and these types of programs. And so there's a lot that was foreign. So I, I sort of went, would be in this investing world where very intellectual, very achievement oriented, um, and then I would go and I would be in this coaching program that was, I mean, almost the polar opposite about, you know, getting out of your head and into your body and trusting your initial wisdom and not necessarily having all the answers and so on and so forth. Right, right. That's really cool. So, so, so it was more of this like vision and curiosity mixed with imposter syndrome. What the hell am I doing here? And, you know, it's all worked out. Yeah. I have a like a tangential question as we leave this VC topic. You know, who would you say is a successful VC in like the whole package? Yeah, I I so I've coached a number of investors over the years. Yeah. And this is something that I say to a lot of my clients. Okay. Um my, my past clients that are investors and some of them are you know, phenomenal investors, um, far better than I, than I certainly was, um, is that, and this is, so is, I mean, I would, I would coach them, but there would be times where I'd play advisor where there's a distinction, which we can get into maybe, but I would always ask them like, well, what's the game you want to play? Because I think there's a certain belief. There's a story that a lot of investors tell themselves that they have to be on Twitter they have to be out there. And to a certain degree, you have to differentiate yourself because capital is a commodity and it's competitive business. Um, 
So I often ask them, well, okay, well, what's the game you're playing? Now, coming back to the heart of your question, there are, you know, obviously many very, very successful investors. I would say ones that, you know, I've always admired. Um, Shanna Fisher is a seed investor out of New York, runs a firm called Third Kind. She does not have a web, I think she has a website, but it's like a splash page, right. is not on Twitter, and is one of the best investors in the last 15 years. Incredible. Just amazing nose for talent, can cut through bullshit, um, just great eye. She can just, she, she, first angel or investor in Pinterest, Stripe, like the list goes on and on. And she's, she's just, she marches to her own beat. She stays out of the, 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 the pitcher and she just, she just does her job and does it incredibly well. A lot of respect for her. Um, then there's someone say like, you know, obviously Fred Wilson, who's the luminary and just the way that he shared so openly in a very authentic way at the time when venture was so opaque and clubby and helped kind of open it up and demystify it for both investors and founders. Mm -hmm. And so just kind of the way that he should, and listen, like he's a phenomenal investor, right? He's invested in great companies. Um, who else would I admire? And then I think like, you know, there's so many, but yeah, you know, Roger Ehrenberg from IA Ventures, he's no longer, he's no longer there. He founded the firm and left. Um, and just Roger is, you know, Roger is just an incredible investor. He's very, very disciplined, thematic, has um, very, very strong principles, like knows exactly what he's looking for. And if it happens to fall out, that's okay, mm -hmm. right? It just doesn't, it's like doesn't fit in his strike zone. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't fit his investment parameters, and he just lets it go. And he's had a I mean, had an amazing, amazing run. And so, like, you know, I they're all very like those three are very different investors, yeah. Yeah. but equally successful and impactful. Now, I, I asked this question partly to showcase some examples of people who don't necessarily follow the traditional rule book, like the lady who don't have a Twitter, right? You could still be as successful without Twitter. Yeah. Right? Um, so that's... That. Yeah, and, and, and the industry has changed a lot, right? So to be fair, I mean, the three of them and, and many others that have had a lot of success in the last 15 years got start not taking anything. I mean, they're... They've earned all of their success. Um, they started in a time where Twitter was kind of just getting started and like VC Twitter and like the whole popularity contest wasn't really a thing. Now moving away from that to Great. this new life, <laughs> a new career, coaching. Um, maybe a good place to start is the podcast. You did it for well. You did a version. Well, you did a first podcast, and that yeah. sort of didn't didn't even like went out the gate. Yeah. And then there's a second version of it. But like maybe let's talk about the first version, the first one. Why did you drop that? 
Because it sounds like a great idea. Well, maybe I'll share with people like what was that idea. Oh, you mean like um, which, which first podcast? The one that I didn't launch? Yeah, you know I didn't launch. Oh, yeah. yeah so that, that's actually a good um, – so as I was leaving primary uh-huh. to pursue coaching full-time, I was working on a podcast called Big City Dreams that was – that was created to feature entrepreneurs and their entrepreneurial journeys in New York City. Primary was a venture capital fund based in New York City that invested solely in New York companies. And so part of my thinking was that big city, I came up with the idea while I was a partner at Primary. And so I ended up, not while, I mean, this was, on the tail end of my time there, but I was like moving full steam ahead. I went and inter- I think I had eight or so interviews, I forget, recorded them, edited them, and was going to launch literally the week of COVID. Okay. And I had a blog post ready to go and I didn't launch it. And what's interesting is I didn't launch it for two reasons. One of which is the world was melting down in COVID. I was doing all my interviews in person at Spotify Studios and couldn't record. This was like before Zoom and all the infrastructure. I didn't have mics, like nothing. Right, right. And I was also stepping more and more and more into my power as a coach. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't think I want to podcast about entrepreneurs in New York. Like I could feel that this wasn't going to be something that was going to be resonant for a long time. No, this all edited, all recorded, ready to go. Huge stun cost, time, money, all of it. It just sitting in a hot drive somewhere. Yeah, and I just said it just doesn't like I don't like this isn't what I want to put out. This doesn't want to come. This is not what wants to come through me. Yeah. Tell me about, like, how did you... Because there's a lot of sunk costs right there. For most people, oh, yeah. they would have just like, hey, what the heck, you know? I'll just put it out. You know, it'll, it'll be a relic. Great. But, like, what was... How did you, like, manage in, to overcome in, all that? In hindsight, I regret not pushing it out. I don't regret it a whole lot. And I, by no means, I'm, I'm, I'm quite compassionate with myself around regret. Um, but this happened to be one... Like, I, in hindsight, I just should have shipped it. Okay. Because the the result, like, I've listened to it. Like, the interviews came out really good. Oh. So, um, yeah, I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I, yeah, I just, there's a part of me that's like if my heart isn't fully into something, I very quickly just move on. Okay. Well, that could be a superpower. Yeah. I think there, I can, I can see it both ways, right? Like, I, because there are times where, I think leaning in to things, even if it's uncomfortable, is important. Mm. Now, I'm going to ask you a couple of like definitional things of certain words that we're going to use because I want to talk about them and I want to learn about what, what you say when you use those words. And the few words that come to mind are purpose, soul, Coaching and therapy. 
so you can take it however sequence you want? Um, well, I, I think that purpose is in, in its most simple form is a reason for being. And I think purpose, what do you want to call it? Purpose, calling, ambition, like they all have different meanings and they're all kind of variations of that same thing around like, you know, perp like around way of being. Like, you know, what's, what's kind of moving me forward yeah. in this life? And as I think about the word purpose, um, what I've come to appreciate far late, like fairly recently is that whether it's purpose or ambition is that it can and ought to be multidimensional, meaning that purpose doesn't just, you know, in the West, we talk about purpose as, um, as a, as like a, um, achievement oriented sort of endeavor. And to me, purpose is something that can be much broader than just, say, a career pursuit. Mm. Like my, the purpose of my life is to build a startup that puts a dent in the universe and so on and so forth. That could be a noble purpose for someone to pursue, but so could, you know, my purpose is to, you know, go and um, take care of my ailing father. Yeah. And and so I think they're sort of like there there are different elements of it, both in terms of where it can take place in someone's life, in terms of the different dimensions. Mm -hmm. I also think that and this is something I'm really coming to now in my own life, where I think in the West we think a lot about purpose tied to the what, right? What is it that we're achieving? Like the, the specific, the, the goal. Um, and I think there's an opportunity to be purposeful and have purpose around the, the, the how, right? Like how are we being? So for example, one of the things that I'm trying, it's to practice, is to be in presence, right? And so it's, so a purpose that I have is to, to be in presence, right? Um, which is a cultivating a state of a quality, a state of being. And so I think just to step back, I'll stop the ramble is that purpose is multifaceted. We can look at it from all these different angles and different areas of our life. And I, I believe that we need to spend more time focused on the purpose of being more than just the purpose of the, the doing. Mm. I think that's a very interesting thread. And so let me just pause the two questions here and then we'll take one and then we'll come back to the other one because it came out when you were sharing. Well, one is the purpose of being sounds very similar to values, right? I want to be in integrity, I want to be honest, I want to be, I don't know, present or whatnot, right? So that's that side. 
And then another one is about purpose versus, you know, I say toxic ambition. Yeah. Versus like passion. Yeah. Right? Uh, so there's two tracks here. Which one's more juicy? Well, I think the, the, the toxic ambition one causes, like when you said that, I, I think in a post that I wrote a while ago, I called it blind ambition, where it's, I was blind ambitious for a long time, right? Like I didn't even, you know, I was swimming in the sea of ambition, Right. Everyone that I was interacting with was starting a company like they were they were. If you are participating in that system, it's hard not to be ambitious. Right. It's hard not to. But there's cost to that. Right. Um, there's lots of cost to it. Burnout. Right. Um, relationships, alienation. I mean, go on and on and on, right? And, you know, it's sort of like what's the cost of that ambition? And what I observe through my work with clients is that the ambition can drive them, but at a certain point, if all that's driving is that blind ambition, it's, it's not sustainable, it's not sustainable. And frankly, I like, and this is just my bias, like, yeah. you know, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think you're going to, someone's going to get the most out of life if they're just oriented in one dimension of their life. Yeah. Do you, do you feel that um, um, purpose is kind of like love or uh, happiness where it's like one word, but it should be a few words? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, and that's why I was kind of using ambition, purpose, meaning. There's like, there's a bunch of in, words that are interchanged. Mm. And, you know, I think that it, it's such a personal topic that. I mean, it should it should mean different things to different people. Like you know, I use like toxic ambition just because like toxic is fancy word. Um, you would know it. Maybe energy and engagement is good benchmark. Whether it's your ambition slash purpose slash meaning a sustainable one that's energizing and engaging. Or one that is like burning you out. Yeah, or burning or burning people out. Yeah. Right? For your for your conquest. Yeah. So once you identify that that's not what you want, right? I'm in burning out right now and I wanna move out of this into a new place. Well that's one version of it, it's like I need to move out of this, extricate myself. Right, and then the other lake of the stew is like, where am I moving towards? Right. Well, if someone's burnt out, I think the first assessment, like I, in hindsight, I was definitely burnt out after my investing 
career. Um, I think the first is like, I find it interesting where it's like if a founder is burnt out or an executive, it's like, oh, go take a week vacation and come back, get offline. Don't even pick up your email. But I'm a big fan of the of Andy Johns, who's a friend of mine who's written a lot about, you know, knowing when to quit, right? And knowing when to walk away. And sometimes, you know, there's so much um there's so much like trauma and um poor habits and just like a lack of self-care that's transpired over a long period of time that in order to like recover from burnout or from stress or you know this sort of blind ambition like could take many months right and a lot of this is around understanding your nervous system and whether it's regulated dysregulated and what are the things that are bringing you in and out of that and that is a healing process of its own and so you know in some ways it it marks the process that i went through but i had to do it haphazardly and in this liminal space you know obviously someone has to make a living like unless they've sold their company for a lot of money and so i think that the question is is how does someone do that especially if they're just not some wealthy um executive in technology and so so i think it's like there's a first question of like how are you even showing up into this liminal space like are you fully burnt out is your like completely dysregulated like that's that's an entirely different path if it's hey look i'm not that burnt out or i'm not burnt out at all but i want to go and pursue something else yeah. that's a very different process mm -hmm. what i find through working through my own experience and work with others is this liminal space often takes a lot longer than you think. Let's put aside um, the burnout, like major burnout people, and let's just like put in the category of like, oh, I just work in a job that pays me well. Uh, I have enough time off, I'm chill, but like this job is not exciting, not energetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what I would, what I would say to that person is first I would want to assess and help them understand where they are. Where are you in your process? Like, are you, have you completely, have you completely um, moved on in your mind? Is your heart still in it? Like, do you still get energy from any aspect of the job? If it's like, no, I'm ready for a wholesale change, but I don't know what to do. Yeah then that's a whole different process because um, my philosophy is about more feeling into what comes next as opposed to planning it. Mm. Um, there's a book by um, Ibarra, uh, at, who's a former professor at Harvard Business School, wrote a book called Working Identity that I really appreciate. And it's about career transitions and I really appreciate this work where there's kind of like, I forget exactly the way she phrases it, but there's the sort of the planning mm -hmm. approach and more of like an experimentation, mm. experimenting approach. And 
it's very difficult to plan your way through a transition, yeah. even if you want to, yeah. be, especially if you're trying to pivot careers. If you're like, hey, I want to be a chief, pro if I'm a senior product leader and I'm on that track to be chief product officer, I'm just going to keep on going. Like, it's kind of a set path. Yeah. Like, there's a road you're following. There's a clear destination. In the case of like a, oh, like a real transition into an entirely new career could be tangential where you're taking on some of the skills that you've had previously and utilizing them. Yeah. It, um, it's more of like a path through the woods. Like yeah. you don't know where you're going. So it, in other words, it's a complex process. It's like a new, a new thing is going to emerge, but you almost have to trust as you're going through this process that in this state of disorientation and fear and uncertainty, that something will emerge if you allow it to, but you have to be patient. I mean, I was speaking from my own experience, it's the, the, the trust piece um, and like not knowing how long it's going to take. Yeah, there's no lines of demarcation. It's not like you... Um, What's a good example? It's not like um, you know where you are in the process, yeah. right? And you, you don't even know how much effort will yield results. Yeah. Like you could go to 100 meetups and not meet anybody that like that – that, like if you're looking for um, something to do and you're like, I'm just going to go to a bunch of meetups. You can go to 10 different meetups and like – walk away like being like yeah I didn't, none, none of these resonated with me yeah is and also i think personally the, the the term transition coaching is such a helpful term when i was going through my own transition if i could use that term search term i could probably get like way closer like way sooner right so now with the term that we know, what would you, if you were you then and you were looking for this transition coach, what would you look for? Where would you begin to search? Yeah, I, for me, well, back in the day, I wouldn't have known where to search. Um, what I, what, here's what I would look for is I would look for someone, well, it, it, again, like, if I would go back to 2017 when I quit my job at RRE, I would want someone that's been through, if not one, but several meaningful transitions in their life, right? That they're not just coming in and, you know, spitting a bunch of frameworks and coach speak that they've actually lived through and have like real relevant experience. So that's one. Um, I would look for someone that blends career coaching, executive coaching, and life coaching so that they're approaching me as a multidimensional human being, um, but are also weaving in the experience of executive coaching, can speak the language, understand the context of the world in which I operate, and then also career coaching in terms of like helping me sort of understand what my path forward might look like. Um, and so those are just a number of attributes, but I, I think there's a bunch of others. Like I think they need a, 
like similar to like how a leadership coach under is like a student of leadership, right? And in interpersonal dynamics, a transition coach really has to understand the intricacies of transition and change. Multiple models, helping people really understand where in the process they are, how it unfolds, how to move through transitions um, in terms of um, their patterning and conditioning. So it's a long way of saying there's a bunch of different elements of transition coaching, and um, those are some of the elements. Mm. Now, I don't imagine this is going to be, you know, any therapeutic modalities. It's not going to come cheap, right? And for someone who's maybe not a CEO or, you know, in a, that company who's doing transit, they're like, okay, well, I don't have that much money now, but maybe I should start a few books, right? Yep. Um, which are like the top fields that come to mind or resources, articles? I would say the top, the top book for me on, on transitions is one that's you know probably the oldest, which is Transitions by William Bridges, the three-stage model, the ending, the middle, the beginning. Um, that one obviously has gotten a lot of playtime. It's referenced probably the most. Um, Life is in the Transitions that was recently published by Bruce Feller. Also very good. I have some, some criticisms of it. But like on the whole, like you're going to learn a lot about transitions. There's a book that's less well known um, and recommended that I like called The Adult Years by Frederick Hudson. He started the Hudson Institute of Coaching. And his model is a little bit different. It's more circular than linear. And um, I think there's a lot more depth to it than, than Bridges' model. Okay. Well, people will look into that. I think that's something I just want to maybe ask you in the question about being generous. Um, so you work with um, Rachel, right? Your writing coach. And... When she was working with you from the start, she was paid a certain amount, right, in your agreement. And she was happy with it. You were happy with it. And then you just increase <laughs> what you pay her. Yeah. Well, she didn't ask for it. Let's no. be clear. <laughs> no. I, I've, she's not the only person I've done that to. Yeah. I've so done it to my 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 virtual assistant, actually my meditation teacher, I did that too. Yeah, well, I, I don't even know if I would call that generous. What would you call that? I, for me, it's, it's seeing someone's value and paying them what I think their value is to me. Mm. And so when I recognize talent and I have the story that they're undercharging. I believe that as a consumer is like, I should pay them what they're worth to me. When did that begin? With Rachel, actually. Oh, that was the first person? That was the first time and I've done it three times since. Huh. Yeah. And I think maybe because now that I'm a service provider yeah. and I'm a, I'm a practitioner myself, and so um, when I appreciate great service and support, like it makes me even appreciate it more. Mm. 
That makes sense. Uh, we'll touch a little bit generally on coaching. And I think the two questions that stood out to me, because I think you have a unique experience on, firstly, having a lot of coach coaching you from different modalities, and then being into many different coaching school certification. <laughs> so, um, maybe, so on those two branches, like one is, maybe let's just start with the different coaches, right? Uh, and what I'm going to dive down into is, how do you pick them and when do you know you should move on? I don't give it too much thought. For me, I, I'm always being coached. Um, I generally view my coaching relationships as short term. Um, so I've worked, I mean, I've worked with a bunch of coaches. I would say I've worked with, uh, Josh. I worked with for a while, Dr. Josh, yeah. uh, in multiple instances. But so I think the first time we worked together, maybe six months, took a pause and then worked together for maybe another three, three to six months. How do you structure that? And from the beginning, just month to month. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, for me, it's just kind of feeling into what what's what's taught, like what want, like I'm. Like, it, it's almost like where am I? What am I working on? What kind of modality do I think will most resonate with me? What what am I curious about in my own process? So there's a bunch of factors that go into it. Um, again, I don't overthink it. Like in the case of now I'm working with Steve, uh, Steve March from Aletheia, like I took his class and I was like, this guy's, this guy's brilliant. I want to learn from him. I just reached out to him at the end of the course and said, do you take on, you taking on any new clients? He said, not for another three months, but email me in two months and we'll see where I'm at. And sure enough, I did. Um, most of my coaching, so with Steve now, it's pretty much month to month. We're just feeling into it. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of Rachel, I've worked with her almost two years. She's mm -hmm. my editor and writing coach. Um, so that's been that's been the longest. Most most of my when I when I yeah. So most of my coaching relationships are two years. Wow. Or sorry, six months. Six months. Yeah. So I mean, you you go in knowing that it's just like short term. And like whenever you feel like you're done, you're done. Yeah, you, you feel it. Right. Because no, I can imagine the story of someone would be like, oh, it's so hard to say no or like. No, yeah. it's for me, it's, hey, look, like I've gotten a lot out of this. Like, right. And, and usually what I do is I don't just like coach up from like one coach to another. Oh. I'll usually like take a break and then wait some time and then kind of see where I want to go from there. No. The coaching certifications. <laughs> I'll just list them. Um, if I miss anything or say anything wrong, let me know. So there's the co uh, coaching for transformation. There's the NLP, neurolinguistic programming. There is the IFS, internal family system. Um, there's CLG, conscious leadership group. There is um, parts work. Um, parts work is the same thing as IFS. IFSS. And shadow, would you say shadow is? Uh, shadow is not, it's Im embedded in, in all everything. Those. And then there's Enneagram. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, and then there's the first one, ICF. What is that under? ICF? Yeah. Oh, um, oh uh, the ACC? Yeah, yeah. There's, is there anything else I miss? 
I took a course with BJ Fogg out of Stanford called Tiny Habits. Tiny Habits. What else? There's some others. Okay, what's all this? Men's going emotional up? leadership training with this men's com- uh, group called Everyman. Oh yeah, no, yeah. So some others. I'm always learning. Yeah. So now, do you feel that after you take so many courses, um, looking back, right? Um, if you would say to someone who is just fresh off the boat, you know, wanting to try it out, maybe the first two or three courses, how will you sequence it uh, for them? You know, I know a lot more now about the process. And so, and there's obviously a lot of programs out there. A ton. And so at first I want to assess kind of where they are, like what their objective is, Sometimes people reach out to me that are more coach curious. So I'll often just recommend like a book or a few books to get started or even, um, what's it? Um, what's the big, the big coaching, uh, the seven questions one, no CTI, uh, coaching training Institute where they like piecemeal their courses. Oh, so you can do like their primer or their primer course, like their intro to coaching course. That's just like over a weekend, so you don't have to actually make the full commitment. Mm -hmm. So first is I want to assess like, okay, well, what are you interested in? What do you want to learn about? Like, does ICF matter to you? And there's usually, you know, like a few programs that I'll recommend just based on what I hear. Like oftentimes I'll immediately, like if you want to go the ICF track, probably like um, New Ventures West because I just hear great things about it. If you don't care that much, like I think Alethea is great, but Alethea is probably a little too advanced for a newbie. Um, so there's a bunch of, de- again, it all depends on the person. And yeah, but like the few would be, well, take, first of all, the principles would be like piecemeal the thing. Have a prime, don't come into a one-year thing right off the bat. No. Right? Uh, and then start a few books. Like what are the books... Um, Actually, my friend Holly just messaged me about uh, about coaching books, and I just recommended um, Coaching for Performance by uh, Sir John Whitmore. I like The Mindful Coach by Doug Silsby. Also, I like Presence-Based Coaching by Doug Silsby. Those are pretty solid, but like those will get you started. I, I do want to ask uh, the, the topics uh, more in depth with coaching as you know people go through and I think it's less spoken about like one is being triggered by our clients yeah uh, I think people who receive coaching don't know about this all too much right I mean even for therapists I'm sure they get triggered too yeah right so like how did it happen do you have an example and what was the like behind the scenes work that you gotta do yeah well I think about this in the case of, um, you know, one example comes to mind and I think I should say like, look, I'm human, right? Like I have my own condition tendencies and propensities. And so when I'm interacting with humans, whether I'm out on the street or in a session with a client, it's inevitable that I'm going to get triggered or activated at some point. Um, so I'm thinking back to a time where one of my clients, uh, former clients, was a workaholic and would talk about spending, you know, basically working for multiple days without sleep. 
or very little sleep. And in that case, in those cases, I have to be present enough to acknowledge what my experience is while also continuing to hold the agenda of my client. And then navigate that in a way that if I get tripped up enough on it, I might just name what my experience is if I think it will benefit my client in some way. If it doesn't, I won't say anything. But after the session, it, I make a note to go back and actually do work with the parts of me that have an aversion to workaholic. Hey, I just want to let you know that um, Steve um, over at the episode um, didn't feel too well. So we cut the episode short. Nonetheless, um, I hope you enjoy it. And thanks for staying to the end. I hope you have a fantastic week ahead. Mm-hmm.